FM and WBAI.org on the web. Usually at 3 p.m., you'd be tuning in to Talk Back with Hugh Hamilton. Hugh will be back tomorrow. That's right, tomorrow at 3 p.m. Right now, stay tuned for a special presentation by the Open Center. Sally Brown, and I'm uh, speaking here from the New York Open Center uh, show. Today, um, I have a special presentation about an event that's happening in November, and for the next two hours, we'll be speaking to scholars and renowned performers who will be part of this very unique experience. Now, this is a collaborative effort between New York Open Center and the Ibn Arabi Society, and we're going to be talking about what these two organizations do and who they are and what this event is about. It's a conference uh, called Ibn Arabi and Rumi, Teachings for the Modern World. Um, This will be happening on November 4 and 5. And the conference um, will be held at Columbia University. Now, we will be having and including international scholars from the U.S., Europe, and the Middle East who basically have devoted their careers to translating and interpreting works of these great mystics from the Middle East. Um, The keynote speakers, if you are at all familiar with this area, is James W. Morris. We have Fatima Kashivaz, who is an expert on Rumi and a literary figure herself. Michael Sells, who is an expert on uh, Ibn Arabi. And Nagy. Narjis Ferrani, who is here in New York at NYU. And there are several other uh, speakers and performers. Uh, we also have a renowned musician. Um, these are just speakers that will be at the conference. Not everybody else that I'm speaking about is going to be here. But um, our special guest will... This is our... By the way, this is our second biannual series of this conference based on Ibn Arabi. This is a mystic born in um, Spain, uh, back in 1165, we're going back that year, and we're going to be discussing uh, more in depth about uh, the qualities of why his teachings are important to the world today, um, spiritually speaking, also in Sufism and mysticism, and how they connect to Abrahamic religions, and also because I feel that a lot of the Middle Eastern philosophies and spiritual thoughts are a little uh, talked about or taught really in the West. So that is one of the points of having um, this wonderful conference happen. Now, just to give you a picture of how this is going to go, we're going to have a Friday night, which is the 4th of November, and we're going to have the keynote speaker. We're going to have poets speaking in Arabic, reciting in Arabic and Persian, translating into English. We will have also uh, well-known Turkish um, musician by the name of Omar Tekbilek. And if you're familiar with his wonderful music, you will definitely want to come and hear him. Um, then also, the Saturday will be a full day of 
plenaries of lectures, workshops, panel discussions, poetry readings. And then in the evening, we will be, uh, of course, uh, surrounded by the beautiful uh, poetry of um, Coleman Barks and the beautiful cellist also, um, David Darling. Then we will, of course, hear from a wonderful British actor by the name of Aaron Kaus. So we have a breakdown of basically what the evening will go. There will be a whirling dervish, and as we go along, we'll discuss this. Nick, are you there? I am. Hi. I can actually not hear you on this. Um, let me um, go on here. But I want to introduce Nick. Nick is one part of the partner organization that we're working with, the Ibn Arabi Society. And let me tell you a little bit about Nick, first of all. Uh, Nick holds a master's degree in transpersonal psychology, and he works as an IT manager in software in California, where he is calling us from. Um, He is a director of the United States branch of the Ibn Arabi Society, which promotes teachings and translations of this great spiritual teacher. And he is a great ongoing student of the Bashara School of Intensive Esoteric Education in Scotland. And we're going to learn a little bit more about this. And, Nick, can you tell us a bit more about the Ibn Arabi Society and um, how you came to love this work? Yes. Um, I've been involved in the Ibn Arabi Society since it was founded in 1977 when I was living in England. And Mm -hmm. I was a student at the Bashara School. Mm-hmm. And a number of people that I was uh, in association with decided that the work of Ibn Arabi was hugely underrepresented in the Western world. At that time, I don't think there were more than two or three books of his in translation. Um, so there was a real need to get uh, the word out on Ibn Arabi, who is the author of reputedly something like 350 works some of which are huge. One in particular, the Futuhat al-Makia, uh, when translated in English, is expected to take over 30 volumes. So this is a, a monumental uh, writer, thinker, mystic, poet, who has a profound message for the West, we believe, and uh, is someone that we have been promoting through the Ibn Arabi Society as a way to enable translators, writers, academics to get a hold of manuscripts, uh, conferences that are put on every year mm-hmm. in order to promote his works, mm-hmm. and also to, uh, to bring his teachings to a, a very receptive Western audience that uh, is, is looking for meaningful and, and uh, fundamental ways of rethinking our relationship to the divine and what we mean by uh, self-transformation. So, so these, are the, these are some of the key points, I think. Well, the key points, exactly. Um, basically, how we are interpreting, uh, some would say, basically, the words of the divine into the material plane and how we can actually benefit as humans or humanity can benefit from them, um, especially in, this to- in these times right now of great turmoil. I think that many people need to search for something a little bit with deeper meaning. Um, we also have Michael Sells on the line. Michael, are you there? Hello? Hello. Uh, hi. Hi, Michael. Hi. I, I want to introduce uh, Michael Sells to you, uh, being that actually we were supposed to have uh, Fatima, but she, uh, we were not able to get a hold of her. I just want to introduce Michael Sells. He is a Ph.D., is uh, 
John Henry Barrows, Professor of Islamic History and Literature at the Divinity School of the University of Chicago. He teaches courses in the area of Quranic studies, Sufism, Arabic, and Islamic love poetry, Ibn Arabi uh, mystical literature, and religion and violence. He's published several books, and um, he also uh, has sp- has written a variety of other works. Uh, and Michael, if you could please, first of all, let's talk a little bit about the name Ibn Arabi. The conference itself is named Ibn Arabi and Rooming Teachings for the Modern World, but most people will refer to it right now as the Rumi Conference because they see the word Ibn Arabi and they're not very familiar with it or how to pronounce it. Um, so we, if we could just start in that respect. Uh, yes, well, the word, um, which is short for Ibn al-Arabi, mm-hmm. um, actually just means, uh, if, if you could make it into an, an English uh, name, it would be Arabson, like you would say Michelson or Jackson. Um, Arabson, the, the son of the Arab, um, it, was, uh, it was his name, and he actually is very conscious of that particular name, and in one of his major uh, works of love poetry, he talks about um, himself as Arab son, son of the Arab, and his love for um, a woman from Isfahan, who um, is is a Persian background, and he gives a, a, a East and West can meet kind of interpretation of that kind of love. I'm sorry. So there? yes, yes. I'm sorry. We caught we caught something here. Go on. Um, so, so the um, yeah. So I would just think of it in terms of um, uh, the name as uh, I'm just trying to familiarize uh, a sense of what the name is. It's not a you know. It's a, actually a very comfortable name when you realize what it means, and um, it it refers to one of the um, uh, not only the. Uh, author of one of the most um, important resources in a whole area of religion and um, literary worlds. Yes. Uh, but the culmination of, um, of centuries of thought, um, poetry, and mysticism so, within that part of the world. So basically, um, a lot of people do not, yes, do not know him and introduce him uh, so we are basically right now introducing him and um, what his work was about uh, in the period that he came from and how he affected um, Sufism, first of all, and what were some of the contributions that Ibn Arabi gave to the world that we are not familiar with today? Um, well, let me just start from, um, uh, from the fact that um, he probably wrote um, one of the most um, uh, love-infused, um, inclusive, but highly rigorous um, understandings of uh, religion in the world mm-hmm. of um, anyone that uh, that we have in any heritage, and um, it, he has a, a superb criticism of uh, dogmatism and intolerance of all forms in, in religious theology. Um, as, uh, as Nick mentioned, he, com- he is said to have composed over 300 books. Uh, one of those books is coming out in a new edition, which would probably be over 30 volumes. Right. And, um, and you know, but mentioning volume doesn't really help matter matters. What's extraordinary is the variety 
and the beauty of the writing, the depth of the writing. Um, and that's why it's, I think, given the Larby Society's contributions over the past decades in making this material available and in setting up international forums, because there is a huge interest in Ibn Larby's writings um, internationally, has been so important. Internationally, um, how is he regarded in Europe and the Middle East compared to the United States? Because this is kind of inf- unfamiliar territory here. Uh, well, I, I would say that um, Ibn Larbi has an extraordinary um, following of those who um, have contacted his ideas. Um, it's hard to judge uh, where it's greatest. I think what the Ibn Larbi conferences have done over the last several decades is bring scholars, artists, activists, poets uh, together from around the world. That would be Europe, Japan, um, Central Asia, uh, um, all parts of Africa, the United States, uh, Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, by generating that kind of community, it's one of the one of the few real uh, international societies for the studies of a major figure uh, that's been this active. Wow. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your talk at the conference? You will have actually a plenary talk and then a workshop. Um, I will be t- uh, talking um, about two uh, related aspects. Uh, one is uh, uh, Ibn Arabi's poetry um, in this remarkable century, uh, the 13th century of the Christian era, the 7th century of the uh, Islamic era, in which powerful currents of love lyricism and mystical thought were coming together with astonishing speed. Um, and um, this involved several majors, several of the founders of the major Arabic um, uh, Sufi poetic uh, traditions of the classical period. It involved Rumi. It involved uh, the Turkish poetry of uh, Yunus Emre. It involved uh, the woman mystical poet of uh, one of the founding uh, figures of Dutch literature, Hedovich. Mm-hmm. All within a few years, and I'll be talking about how their poetry, um, whether or not we can um, divine any specific influences one directions or another how their poetry participates in a very uh, common world of um, uh, of bringing together uh, love love poetry and mystical uh, longing well one can ask, yeah right. oh just um to hit upon some of the things that make him kind of unique to me as well and maybe you can uh, hit on this a little bit uh the background of Ibn Arabi himself, and for example, that he was someone that also uh, had teachers who were women, um, which is something that we usually don't hear about, uh, just because it's 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 a certain kind of stereotyping of what the Middle East is about. And um, if you could talk about his learning, I mean, he seems to have gathered an enormous amount of learning in a short period of his time, uh, and well, in his. In, um, we, we are fortunate in, in Ibn Arabi's case that we have an extraordinary range of autobiographical writings where he talks about his life, his experiences, and his teachers. Mm-hmm. And he's written about um, with um, 
depth and profundity about uh, several dozen of his teachers, a number of whom were women. And uh, these are some of the most vivid portrayals of um, women sheikhs, um, here the feminine would be sheikhs, um, of the classical period. At the beginning of this uh, great volume of lyrical poetry that I'll be talking about, mm -hmm. uh, starts out with him talking about how he was in Mecca and he wanted to study with one of the great scholars there who was also a woman, um, and her name is uh, Fakhrid uh, Nassab, Pride of the Women. Uh, women. And he said, no, she should be pride of all the scholars. Yeah. And um, uh, so, yeah, he's um, uh, very much uh, um, a resource. And one of the, one of the uh, great uh, medieval scholars, uh, and I don't know how many there are in any tradition, mm -hmm. that talk with, with this kind of uh, sensitivity about their uh, women teachers. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that is a fantastic uh, piece of news for me. Um, and even just looking at what he was able to do, um, my understanding is that he was actually able to, in detail, write down um, a history of Sufism that had traveled basically through word of mouth or transmission, which was kind of the way that it was known when it came to a lot of spiritual thought. Um, and that he was able to connect Sufis before him and after him, and that at the same time he was also able to influence the East and Western orders of Sufism, and that included uh, Rumi uh, as work. And is that correct? Uh, well, you know, they, some of these things are fascinating for their mystery. Um, there's a wonderful article called Did the Two Oceans Meet by Omid Safi, mm -hmm. uh, which traces the fact that Rumi and Ibn al-Arabi were very close to one another. We know that Rumi's uh, teacher, uh, Shems of Tabriz, mm -hmm. was a member of uh, Ibn al-Arabi's study circles and writes about that. And uh, if we can trust the biographies, Rumi lived in Damascus for a few years at the same time Ibn al-Arabi was living in Damascus. Mm -hmm. So one of the great mysteries is that... Um, do people, uh, even at that time, uh, Rumi probably would have been fairly well known. Ibn al-Arabi, of course, was was famous. And um, well, yes. is it possible that they wouldn't have known of one another's work? Um, why don't they mention one another? Mm -hmm. And that brings up a whole fascinating protocol about um, who is mentioned in these works and who isn't. I, I would say to the questions of influence, um, that the patterns of, of uh, empathy between Rumi and Ibn Arabi are so deep and so profound and so uh, multi-leveled mm -hmm. um, that I, I prefer to think in terms of transfluence, that they were both, uh, to use a popular way of expressing it, they were both channeling powerful, uh, deep currents uh, that were historical, they were bringing them, in a sense, to a culmination. Um, they were channeling uh, currents that were contemporary currents, as you mentioned, from mm -hmm. Ibn Larbi's homeland in, in present-day Spain, mm -hmm. um, uh, throughout the eastern part of the Arab world in Turkey. Rumi came from uh, present-day near Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And they were bringing these together. And they're uh, so... Um, I, I, I think of it in terms of a transfluence, 
that here are two remarkable people, and we may never know um, exactly. when they met if they did. And how has this work affected your life personally? I think like many people that have encountered it in the Lotterby, um, it, it's a mark of uh, constant um, uh, uh, joy. Uh, uh, there's, there are so many levels of, of depth, of insight, of, um, of kind of um, celebration of life, mm-hmm. um, an openness to learning, a mm-hmm. sense that every moment of that one can learn anything is actually uh, the, um, uh, a moment of um, uh, inexhaustible uh, profundity uh, that we are, we're not often um, conscious of, and he helps make, make us conscious of that. Um, so um, I would just say it, there's nothing like uh, learning, teaching, and exploring um, the world of uh, of uh, the vast and very and, and diverse world of Ibn Arabi's works. Well, one uh, just pointing to that, and if someone, let's say, wanted to think about, well, I want to attend this conference. Um, I mean, I myself know my experience of just being in a reading group for Ibn Arabi was that um, I felt a presence work with the work itself just by reading the material, and it's what I would call a sacred presence. Um, how does this really relate to us today, do you feel, in that sense that um, does it bring the presence of the sacred into our lives? Um, is he giving us, of course, the divine connection? Uh, yeah, I, uh, uh, that is, uh, what, what's fascinating to me about that is that um, I think uh, each person that that comes in contact with the work of Ibn Al-Arabi um, would probably have a different answer to that question on uh-huh. on how how it opens up uh, the sacred. But what I think um, uh, what I think Ibn Al-Arabi's writings do is instead of telling people about what we're calling the sacred, he his writings open that world up in, in a variety of ways by um, breaking down uh, assumptions about it, by um, opening up uh, the sense of mystery, um, uh, by breaking apart the kind of um, frozen ideas that he believed uh, encrusted um, the world of uh, talking about religion and the sacred. Mm. And by infusing... Um, his writings with, um, uh, you could call it the sacred erotic element, the sense of, of deep uh, 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 love yearning. Um, fantastic. Um, so uh, we are really looking forward uh, to the conference, of course. This is going to be a very unique event in New York uh, and really in the country because this has rarely been done uh, like this. Um, because I know throughout Europe and the United States, I mean, not Europe and the Middle East, this is more of a constant than it is here, um, at least in the numbers that we're trying to do this coming November. So, uh, Michael, thank you so much for being on with us. It's and, been a great pleasure. Yes, and we will be, uh, of course, seeing you soon. 
Um, I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Thank it you. Is, it is one of the joys of, um, of my career to be able to attend these events on in the lottery. And I, I, can, I can say in, uh, in parting that mm-hmm. what is so remarkable about, about it is it brings together the most learned specialists in history, language, philosophy, theology. It brings together um, artists. It brings together poets. It brings together spiritual mm-hmm. seekers. Well, and it's that diversity that yes. really makes these events shine. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, this is WBAI at 99.5 FM here. We'll be right back. And now we are back with a scholar um, by the name of Narjis Varani, who's right here from the city um, at NYU. And we also have on the line uh, one of the directors from the Ibn Arabi Society, which is a partner organization for this conference and it is really about the Ibn Arabi conferences that we started back in 2009. So, Nargis, welcome. Thank you, Arsali. Thank, Thank you. you. I, want to, I want to just say a little bit more about you. Uh, Nargis is an assistant professor of Arabic at the New School uh, University uh, Liberal Studies in New York. She has a Ph.D. in Arabic and Islamic Studies from Harvard, uh, and she has studied the Quranic with uh, the Sheikh al al Sahar. sorry about massacring the name there, Mosque in Cairo, and uh, holds a shahada and uh, ishasa, uh, permission to teach Quran. Her doctoral dissertation entitled The Nightingale of the Merciful Macaronic. Well, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit more about that. Uh, and she's currently writing a book. Will it include um, a translation into English of all of Rumi's multilingual verses in Arabic, Persian, Turkish, Greek, Armenian, which is quite vast there. Um, and so, uh, Rani, just um, if you could uh, tell us a little bit more about how you came to love the work of Rumi. You are from India, yes? That's correct, yeah. 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 And before I start, I know you mentioned a couple of times I teach at NYU, actually. I'm sorry, I made a mistake school. there. That's, that's fine. New I just school. wanted to make that. We are close enough geographically, <laughs> but two separate universities. Yes. Uh, yeah, I... I was familiar, even as a child, with works of Rumi through his stories that I heard in the family, uh, often enough, mostly of ethical import. Um, sometimes, you know, parents would use them to get the kids to do what they wanted to. So there were all kinds of stories that I grew up with, but of course had no direct access in terms of language. And uh, when I came for graduate, uh, graduate school in London and then at Harvard, I studied under Professor Anne-Marie Schimmel, who was a lover of Rumi and worked on Rumi for 40 to 50 years. So I became even more familiar, was able to read Rumi in Persian, and uh, and finally decided, uh, in some ways against my own will, I resisted working <laughs> on Rumi um, because I said to Professor Schimmel that I did not want to work on something that my advisor has already worked for 50 years. Yes. Um, but it so happened that there was one poem I distinctly remember. After a couple of years, I came across that poem, and it literally almost compelled me and said, this is what I want to do, because it was a multilingual poem, and it was it was a short five-verse ghazal, mm-hmm. which, is an, which is often translated as an ode, uh, usually a love poem, but in this particular poem, there were verses of the Quran that were intertwined 
with what Rumi was trying to say. And from that day, yet again, I got committed and hooked on to what Rumi had to say for the world. Well, his impact on the world, basically in general, people who do not know Rumi, uh, I would say in depth because he does, we know him through poetry, his um, influence on uh, dervish dance mm-hmm. and so on. But um, there has to be, I think there is a more profound nature to him that uh, we don't often speak about, mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. we do that with Ibn Arabi because uh, great profundity and with Ibn Arabi, you don't speak too much about his poetry and uh, more lighthearted and, and beauty of his mm-hmm. work. So when it comes to the poetry, it does work. I wanted to find out from you. It does work with scripture, and it does, of course, uh, instruct, I guess, in spiritual ritual. And so is there more information about that that you can tell us with his work? Oh, absolutely. I think there's there's a reason that we mentioned these two giant figures in you know within the muslim and islamic sphere mm-hmm. uh differently in some ways one is seen as the the great philosopher the other the poet and both of them have a playful side to them and although rumi often in his poetry will berate philosophers there are times that he can become very philosophical in the sense of introspective reflective um so again they have those strands both of them but clearly for Rumi, it is a lot more of, of joy, uh, which is very much rooted within the Islamic tradition. And for my personal scholarly and, and personal interest, very much rooted in the Quran, the Muslim scripture. Mm. But what I find most interesting about it is that even though, as many Persian scholars have shown, that in his just in his Masnavi, what is generally termed as his didactic, didactic poem, there may be over 6,000 verses of the Qur'an that are mentioned. They mm-hmm. are not mentioned or interpreted as it would be in general uh, exegetical works. Mm-hmm. Rumi is so deeply rooted in the tradition and so comfortable with his identity within his tradition that he can, he can sometimes very comfortably again subvert that tradition to give a very different interpretation of the Qur'an other than what generally people have thought about or read into it. So that's where I think I find it so compelling and and just that creativity, as Ibn Arabi does also. Um, but I'm much more rooted in the Rumi tradition. So if you want an example, as mm-hmm. I was right. as I was reading up today, uh-huh. I was, uh, you know, again, I've quoted many in my own work, but, you know, after 9-11, people constantly talked about, you know, how the suicide bombers may have been... Uh, enticed or maybe encouraged by the 72 virgins promised Correct. in the Quran. And I thought this was very interesting that Rumi basically mentions that or hearkens that or resonates in his work in a very different way. So for him, these wonderful, uh, you know, sort of paradisiacal uh, hoodies or the, the angels or the virgins are essentially your fine ethical qualities. Mm. Uh, and he says, and I'm going to quote here, mm-hmm. he says, your fine ethical qualities will run before you after your death, like moon-faced ladies do these qualities proudly walk. Wow. When you have divorced a body, you will see huris in rows, Muslim ladies, faithful women, devout and repenting ladies, and this is directly the words from the Quran, without number will your characteristics run before your beer. In the coffin, 
these pure qualities will become your companions. They will cling to you like sons and daughters, and you will don garments from the warp and woof of your works of obedience. You can see how he completely turns and subverts in some ways the tradition, but brings it so close to what, as human persons, what one is expected to do, and these beautiful qualities, your own ethical qualities, become your own companions. That may be what some people think of these wonderful 72 virgins <laughs> that are going to be your companions. Well, yeah, it's been brought down to media, uh, basically, and it's a lot of, I think there's a lot of misinterpretation, which is one of the reasons that we wanted to do this kind of conference, because it brings more clarity to an entire culture, to the philosophy, to the spiritual thought mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. of what people are trying to say about um, the divine, in fact, or how it affects us on even on an everyday level. And um, could you tell us a little bit more about your uh, classes and what you're going to be teaching at the conference? Yeah, at the conference I propose to do one of an, another favorite poem of mine. There are too many of these that are my favorite, but this is a an example of several verses of the Quran that are put together in a very open, generous manner that again is rooted in the Muslim tradition but takes beyond it and that's why I call it a pilgrim's progress uh, where essentially what is happening is Rumi is offering a way in this particular poem, which is a very unusual poem. It brings together 17 different verses from variety of parts of the Quran. And it's very unique, first of all, in and of itself, in the huge corpus of Muslim sort of mystical literary production. Um, in every way, it's unique. But it's also interesting in terms of any spiritual spiritual person or anybody who's seeking to get on the path of spirituality, what are the different ingredients that one needs to put together or that will happen? So there's always this question in all the world religions about how much effort do you put in and how much is the grace that is bestowed upon you. And so, you know, generally that's called the pilgrim's progress towards higher states of consciousness. And in this one particular poem, Rumi then goes back and and tells us what you know, what these ingredients are, and I'm hoping to bring that out together with in an interactive way within this workshop Mm -hmm. to bring this out as to what are the ingredients. So, you know, the the usual ones that we know about to be patient, uh, to to be submissive, to to have an ear for something that is beyond the material, to think about a lot of these poems start, as this one does, is to constantly say that there is a uh, there is a, a cry mm-hmm. that is constantly above all of us that's calling each one of us to whatever our personal calling is, and we need to develop a an ear to listen to it. And once we do, each one of us has a very personal, individual manner of progressing on this path, uh, which will allow us to be much more open uh, to what is happening around. And as Rumi continuously with the Maulavi Darvishis shows that, you know, you're continuously moving, but you're centered too. And for one to look for this center, one needs to embark upon this path. So that's a poem that I'm going to break 
you know, in a workshop situation, I can actually talk about right. the exact Quranic verses and, and what that means within the Muslim context, but in the much larger concept, uh, context of, of the human person trying to progress on a path of ethics, of spirituality, of mm-hmm. introspection, of, uh, of generosity, of openness. Well, one of the things I wanted to uh, ask is also the works of, of these great mystics. And mm-hmm. sometimes I get the impression that even the people of their own country are not completely aware of all their meaning and all their work and all their translations. And even the United States, when attending a conference like this, what mm-hmm. do you see the importance of this in today's world, the importance of attending something like this, this kind of conference? You're so right. In most of these countries, even though we have great inheritance, you know, the heritage of our, our own religions and cultures, it's, it's often we don't have, first of all, that time to, to stop. Right. And I think a conference like this allows for like-minded, like-minded goals and people to, to stop for a moment and avail oneself of that opportunity. Uh, but beyond that, I think in all of these the poems, the materials that these great, at least in this context, Ibn Arabi and and Rumi offer to us is to somehow make that effort to stop for a moment, listen to something that is beyond the material, that is continuously a part of our lives. Uh, so the the you know one of the things they talk about is this intertwining of the material and the spiritual, and the lives that we live, that we are constantly moving, the idea that these two things are going hand in hand, but one is not aware of it. So one, I think it's the, the whole question about awareness to, to make, take a moment to be, as Rumi would say, be silent all the time. As much as he talks nonstop, no. he also tells us to be silent, to mm-hmm. listen. And I think that something like this, as we are listening to the great scholars or the, you know, the practitioners, the, uh, the artists, I think that it affords moments of those very personal silence that one can participate in uh, while he's continuously, you know, these two are challenging us to then ask of ourselves, where are we at this moment? And I think that's one of the sort of personal benefits of, uh, and uh, and as Michael said earlier, joys of, of my profession that affords me in the middle of all of the sort of conceptual and analytical work that we do, it affords me within these conferences to have a very personal participation as well. Yeah, he's, um, I mean, he was brought to the United States, and I, I'm not completely familiar. I know that uh, Robert Bly on a Bill Moyers interview was speaking, and just to quote him, Rumi and Hafez have been the guiding light, Rumi especially, of American poetry. Mm-hmm. I mean, he says mm-hmm. American poetry for the last five to ten years, and this is in 2007. Yeah. And But it it's almost seems to me that if we're criticizing the Muslim world so much, we should be able to give thanks for the genius that they're, is there. So this is Persian poetry, 14th century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it also, you know, reminded me as you were, you were speaking, Araceli, that, you know, these are not disparate worlds. They are continuously tied culturally, obviously spiritually, and uh, they are intertwined in ways that separating them politically on talking about two different spheres of influence or civilization is, is not productive because continuously uh, artists, uh, people of a certain kind are benefiting back and forth. Just as, you know, we were earlier talking about Ibn Arabi and Rumi, we'll never know whether they met. Uh-huh. But there was that higher influence that allowed them 
to take from each other and provide to the world the kind of inspiration that lasts for over seven centuries. And to this day, their, as you were saying, the sacred presence or their own spiritual uh, status influences each one of us. And clearly, the poetry of poets across these centuries and to this day, whether they belong to the so-called East or West, are, are continuously taking from that inspiration from that same pool of universality and generosity. And I think that's where uh, surely Rumi is, you know, has that substratum uh, of influences that go back and forth in so many ways. So um, let's see. These, this has, uh, yeah, quite gone on for, um, I mean, just going back to the way that, let's say, the United States sees these figures, and I'm glad we're bringing Rumi up more, of course, but then there's also now Ibn Arabi and several mm-hmm. mystical figures mm-hmm. that should become much more well-known. Um, there is a movement, uh, especially with universities and cultural centers in the United States, to start bringing more information about this because mm-hmm. of the lack of it there has been for so long. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, mm-hmm. today in the New York Times, I think there is an article about the Metropolitan Museum that is presenting uh, a specific emphasis on Islamic art. Mm-hmm. And if differentiate a little bit for me Sufism and speak a little bit about Sufism and how he represents that and how that culture is part of Islam because it's considered the esoteric branch of Islam, but it's not always understood in the American mind. What does that mean? Yeah, I think that in, in more contemporary times, there is kind of an effort to think of Sufism as outside of Islam. And there was a whole strain of academic writings that did that in the last century as well. Uh, but we have enough evidence, and several scholars have painstakingly showed that it is very much, it grows from the very roots of Islam, from the Quran, from the life of the Prophet himself, who was, who was very spiritual-minded. And therefore, this strain of spirituality is the very core in some ways. And the Sufis saw themselves as, as representing that, that core. Not everyone is inclined or ready for, for a spiritual path or make the sacrifices for it. Uh, it also acknowledges that there are some people that may have more of a literalist bent, a, a, a ritualistic bent, and in all religions this is true. And there are others that work more with symbols and, and spirituality, and they don't necessarily give up the, the external or the exoteric. But these are clearly the the esoterics, and Sufis, right from the beginning, saw themselves as that. Uh, There are different strands of Sufism that are represented often, and uh, some of the scholars have have named that. For example, Ibn Arabi, is, as William Chittick uh, has named his book, is the path of knowledge, and Rumi is the path of love. Obviously, they're not, you know, mutually exclusive. Uh, But uh, Sufism then becomes this, attitude, I think, to look beyond the material, to look beyond the literal, to look beyond what the eye can see and accept and try to cultivate an eye and a heart that sees beyond what is obvious. And within that strain, all of the people we're talking about fit into it. Clearly, Ibn Arabi and Rumi become some of the the greatest, you know, uh, exponents of, of this kind of an attitude. But Yunus Emre and 13th century where all of these great people are also becomes in some ways an expression of perhaps the time where these movements are coming into fuller force in some ways. It is a time of great turmoil uh, with the Mongol invasion 
people are moving around, uh, civilizations that they knew of that seem to be standing on their own are falling apart. Mm. And within that that moment of, of destruction, mm. they bring the message of spirituality that has, a, you know, a creativity and an ever-nurturing, ever-renewing aspect of the inner self, which also on the material front allows for one to recreate with greater vigor uh, cultures and civilizations that are open to everybody. Ah, that's the thing, inclusivity, a universal perspective, uh, which is one of the main uh, themes of this conference. Mm-hmm. And I think that the other thing is that you mentioned the word attitude, mm-hmm. um, which is the attitude being more inclusive and universal, which is not always associated with Middle Eastern philosophy in the United States. <laughs> it's true. That's it's true. This, this, is, this is very important to me. And then what happens is also when you say Sufism, we're not talking necessarily you're changing your religion. This is just uh, what people, these are teachings that teach you how to live. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's uh, the way we're looking at that. So um, uh, do you have something else that you would want us to uh, know about Rumi that maybe is not known about him or anything you want to say before you go? Well, I think one of the, the, the uh, on a very personal note, every time I look at a poem, every time I look within the teaching context, sometimes I don't revisit my own work or look at additional works of, you know, additional poems. But every time I do, there is that that, that larger sense of, of upliftment, mm. of hope, uh, even my own activism in so many different ways, whether it is environmental, whether it's social justice, there is this, you know, underlying principle of Romi that, that constantly talks about, you know, if you don't plow the earth, nothing will grow. <laughs> and that whole idea that, you know, just a couple of days ago, we lost our Nobel laureate, uh, Vangari Matteo, mm. and we, uh, she again talked about being the hummingbird, being this person who will do one's personal best. And I think those are, these are the constant reminders to be open to the materiality, but also the spirituality, to be open and generous and large enough to, to, to open oneself to other interpretations, but also continuously uh, feel responsible and participate. And that's what propels my own sort of activism ah. and the other part i think is always within the sufi message is that you know it's not always about destination mm-hmm. it's not always about where you're trying to go which is what we are con- continuously sort of taught right. you know there are goals and you reach that the idea is to step back and enjoy the process mm. enjoy the process and each each stage of that process could very well be the destination so long as you don't become content with it and say, I have reached. It's never because in that larger scheme, somebody higher is constantly greater than where you have reached and yeah. you continuously move with that. So I think those are the those are the kind of things that I see with Ibn Arabi when he talks about the horizon and how the horizon is the meeting place of the, the earth and the sky. Mm-hmm. But when you move a step closer... The horizon moves as well, mm. and that's a new, again, a new vantage point from which to look at everything rather than become comfortable in one's own opinion and close it off. No. And that openness is something that I think uh, one can, within a conference like this, one can 
participate intellectually and also with like-minded group of people personally engage in one's. Oh, engage in one, yeah. I think it's also a joy and a pleasure, actually, to be in the presence of, and I think it, it impacts the soul. Uh, which Absolutely. I, yeah, because that's one of the, uh, actually, something that Robert Bly also said about that, that poetry impacts the soul. It touches the soul. It tells mm-hmm. the soul to remember. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you're basically, you know, making a connection to the divine yet again. And so um, I want to tell you, this has been great. You were wonderful. And um, we're going to be uh, saying goodbye now to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me, and uh, good luck. Yeah, I have to rush for another meeting, so I'm off. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so I just want to uh, give you a little bit of information again about the conference itself, Ibn Arabi and Rumi, Teachings for the Modern World. It's going to be held at Columbia University on Friday and Saturday, November 4 and 5, and for listeners right now of of WBAI, if you – get in contact with the Open Center today all the way until Monday, you will be given a discount from the current price of the conference. If you come with groups, that will even be better for you. So uh, please do call at 212-219-2527, extension 2 or extension 0. Again, 212-219-2527. And definitely go to the website so you can really take in the entire conference through there. It's a beautiful website. It's uh, www.opencenter.org slash Ibn Arabi, I, B as in boy, and as in Nancy, Arabi, A-R-A, B as in boy, I. So thank you. Thank you.